The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop letting your wee fitness boss you around and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 347 with guest John Lamb, recorded live Monday, May 5th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine. The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man one is a good grammarian, and not a bad speller, Nita, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I'm here with my friend Richard Campbell. Hey, Richard. Howdy, howdy, sir. Man, uh, this is Tech Ed Week. Yes, it is, and I love a good Tech Ed. Too bad I got to do two of them back to back. Well, it's fun. Uh, tech Ed is always fun. And next week, I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be the run as guy. It'll be Greg Hughes and I doing all the IT stuff. We really hit a nerve with this whole back to basics thing. Yeah, lots um, of people interested. Yep, I'm. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, one of the things that uh, that that I do here on the show is called uh, Better Know a Framework, and that's sort of. Uh, Sort of a manifestation of my wanting to get back to basics, I think, and yeah. just to sort of talk about the the real things that people need to be looking at. One of the things I'm going to talk about today. Uh, well, let's roll the music, and I'll just go I'll right just into go it. right into it. All right, what are we talking about? Yeah, so I'm talking today about the um, attribute class. So, so we know what attributes are. Attributes are these little pieces of metadata that we tag on to classes. Or, or to um, to methods of a class, or even namespaces. In fact, um, they can go on a an assembly, a class, a constructor, a delegate, an enumeration, an event, a field, an interface, a method, a portable executable file module, a parameter, a property, a return value, a struct, or another attribute. Wow! Yeah, an attribute on an attribute. An attribute on an attribute. That's cool. So. It, well, some things have some methods and properties in the framework have attributes that you can set. Um, but if you want to create your own, and, and first of all, why would you want to create your own? That's a very good question, and the documentation doesn't give you too much help in terms right. of when you want to create your own yeah, attribute. When, when's a good time to do this? I really think of an attribute as sort of a way to make a class or an object dynamic, whereas you want to associate or pass in data to that object. Um, when you create it, not necessarily when it's uh, built. So there are things and properties that always get set, um, but they're not necessarily associated with the object. They can also be associated with a, a particular method. So, so this is just a, a nice way to uh, attach metadata to your objects. Right now, if you're going to do that and you want to create your own attribute class, you want to use the system dot attribute. Base as a base class. So if you use that as a base class, then you can create a constructor that passes in parameters and just continue to add your properties to it. 
and then those properties get created on the constructor and you can attach the uh, attribute to a class, to your own class. Definitely worth a look in the documentation, the system.attribute class. Know it, love it, learn it, live it. Awesome. This is what I'm saying. Richard, you got an email for us? I do indeed. You're going to like this one. Hey, guys, talking about Enterprise Service Bus and the BizTalk episode, you were dancing over the entire episode around what makes BizTalk an ESB. Your guest was dodging it a bit, too, and here's why. BizTalk integrates as the thing in the middle. It's a central hub in a hub-and-spoke style of application. Mm. Ready for it? Here you go. And he sends me a link to Udi Dehan's blog. Mm. And I've shrinksterized the link. It's at shrinkster.com slash YN. So Yankee November X-Ray. And the blog itself post is quite short. It actually references yet another blog post and a Q&A. And the question is this. Could you tell me your thoughts or preference on a distributed or centralized enterprise service bus? And the answer is there's no such thing as, an, as a centralized enterprise service bus. So now that's really the point here, that labeling BizTalk and Enterprise Service Bus is marketing snake oil. Even Microsoft tech fellows admit that there's no such thing as a centralized enterprise service bus. From an architecture pattern standpoint, there are two completely different things to be aware of. The first is the bus topology, and the second is the broker topology. And Microsoft has great literature on both of those things. If you just look up a message broker or message bus, you'll get info on that. So Microsoft has chosen to label BizTalk as an enterprise service bus for marketing purposes. It currently doesn't have a decentralized bus product on the market. The real enterprise service buses on the market look completely different in production than BizTalk. Hmm. Still a huge fan, Evan Hoff. Well, that is a good point. And, um, I, you know, I think I talked about that a little bit by saying, you know, you got this black box that's sort of in the center of everything, sure. running everything through that. Well, and it's interesting know. that even the diagrams that Microsoft have on enterprise service buses didn't have BizTalk in them. Hmm. You know, so it's, it is sort of a game that's being played as to how do you implement this thing correctly. And I think it really leads to other shows we could do talking about the centralized or non-centralized models. Yeah, I think so, too. We're definitely going to have to do that. Well, Evan, you get a mug. Send thanks your mug. Thanks very much. And if you've got thoughts on our shows, if you want to see something new or we're missing a point, some love, some hate, you name it, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. And uh, speaking of email, Mary Jo Foley is a tech ed and she's promoting her new book, which is Microsoft 2.0. That's the name of her book. Uh, oh. It's a book about what's next for Microsoft in its 2.0 chapter, the period starting July 1st when Bill Gates is no longer performing day-to-day -day duties at the company. And the book covers what's next on the product, people, and business model front. So uh, she's here signing books. And if you are at TechEd, if you're here, she's going to be signing on Tuesday from 12.45 to 1.15 p.m. And Wednesday from 12.30 to 1 p.m. in the bookstore at TechEd, which is uh, being run by Digital Guru. So go in there. And, and if you want to, if you're a listener, you're not coming to TechEd and you want a, a signed copy, Send us an email right now to .net rocks at franklins.net, and the first person to request a signed copy of this book will get one. Well, uh, Richard, our guest today is John Lamb. I'm very excited to have John back for the third time, I believe. Right, John? Yeah, I think so, right? The first time was some Fenway Park thing that we did. And right. Second time was, I guess, July last year, I think it was. Yeah, it was yep. about a year ago, when we, and we ended up talking largely about the DLR. Yeah. Well, uh, just before we start talking again, uh, I want to read the succinct bio that John sent us to read for him. John works on Iron Ruby at Microsoft and wants to make a difference. I love it. That's it. Love That's that bio. I got to say. <laughs> well, and what a core statement about most folks, especially folks that uh, are like I consider like third-party additions to Microsoft, where you didn't come out of school and went straight into Microsoft or anything like that. You were already had a great career. You were John Lamb, yeah, and and joined <laughs> Microsoft. I can see the only reason you would do that is to make a difference. Well, you are I yeah. unknown, so let's. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'll keep that that moniker forever because right? <laughs> that that technology paid a good chunk of my mortgage for a while. So. I'm talking about <laughs> John's blog iunknown.com, which is a great URL. I love it. I unknown been very, very good to me. <laughs> That's right. All these people complain about Con being too complicated and stuff. It was awesome, right? It was awesome. It, yeah. You know, hi, uh, you, would, you could say about com objects that they were a little bit tweaky because of the binary stuff, but, and, you know, a little uh, 
inperformant to to load up, but once they were up and running, man, they could run forever, very fast. Yeah, it was it was, it was a great technology, and there's still some good ideas, you know, from from way back then that are still applicable today. Yeah. Then there's DCOM. The D stands for dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Oh, we learned a lot of lessons from hindsight. Those days. Is twenty twenty? Oh yeah. Well, you know what? And I definitely could point to several pieces of expensive equipment that DCOM paid for. <laughs> when you could Excellent. figure out how to make DCOM actually work, yeah, you were very busy. Oh, DCOM was awesome before you turned on security. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pesky security. <laughs> ah, yes, authentication is my friend. Yeah. Nobody understood it after that point. Security has never been a fun point for developers. It's just it just means okay, what can't I do now? Yeah, what's broken? Well, it's it's the opposite of what you spend your days doing, right? Yeah. You know, like as a developer, you spend all day trying to get stuff to work, and as a security guy, you spend all day trying to get working stuff not to work. until things stop working. Right. The job's right. not done till the app won't run. Speaking of security, yep. what the hell ever happened to code access security? Is it, was that a bad idea? Was it poorly implemented, or was it just not well received? It was too complicated. Yeah. Right. So the the enemy of um, of uh, security is complexity. So if you're trying to give a security model, there are a lot of really good ideas in CAS, but the problem was is that the vast majority of people out there, myself included, right, couldn't understand it well enough to make it work. So there's no way that you can implement a secure system using technology that you can't understand. Yeah, and basically the core problem is when it when code doesn't work and you want it to, that's bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or works under the wrong set of conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Now we had a we had Brent Rector on the show very early on to to give us the what I think is the uh, core definition of and the best definition I ever heard of code access security and description of it. And uh, when we started getting into it to try to to use it, it just, like you said, just too many variables, too many difficult things to understand. And, you know, really, I like to look at a file, maybe look at some attributes in the operating system in the shell, and then understand what I'm dealing with. Look at a list of locked files, maybe something like that, and I can figure stuff out. But with CAS, you needed tools, you needed a whole bunch of other, you needed to put it under a microscope to figure out what was going on. Uh Uh-huh. Really yep. difficult. Yep. Well, anyway. And, and yeah, I wonder if it's just that it was never transparent. You could never see why stuff wasn't working. Well, that's basically it. Yeah. You know, in, in uh, as an as a guy as an IT guy, the one of the key features that Windows added a couple of versions ago was my ability to say what is the effective permissions of this user on this file or on this right. resource. So that it would actually go through, look at an account and say, because of this group policy that they're a member of, this person has access to this. But because of this group policy over here, they're denied it. Right. So you stop you looking really at the... You really want to know why this the, doesn't work as opposed to having to figure out that stuff and collect the information yourself. Yeah. And that's the thing you couldn't get from CAS. You couldn't say, okay, I get it that it doesn't run. Why? Yep. So how was the MVP summit? The MVP summit was fun. Yeah, we uh, got a lot of folks in town, and uh, so we tried to organize, you know, a little subversive Ruby meetup thing there, right, which was kind of fun. You know, it's kind of a little testament to the power of Twitter for organizing kind of these these spontaneous events at, at conferences. So we had about 10 guys there, and we, we sat around, and we spent about an hour and a half talking about Ruby there. Um, you know, so that was a great thing. And we also had the Alt.net summit that kind of, you know, um, backed into the, the end of the MVP summit. So... Um, so folks that were here for MVP could stick around for that, and some folks actually flew in just for the um, for the Alt.net conference at the end of the week as well. So that was also a lot of fun because it was a great chance to sit around and you know talk to folks in the .NET community about you know what they thought about Ruby. Did Henry go with you? Ah, <laughs> no, Henry didn't make it out to that thing, you know, because because Ben was gripping it closely to his chest at that point, <laughs> trying to keep Dad from stealing his train again. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounded like uh, you know from what I read that that you had a good time, and uh, there's there's been you know Richard and I have sort of uh, been seeing this more and more when we go to these um, sort of mini conferences, the code camps and the tech fests and things that there's a lot more than just .NET topics on the table. Sure, people are really really talking about a lot of interesting things. And I think, you know, those kinds of conferences are particularly interesting, and I'm talking about the open space style conferences because. At the end of the day, conferences are about conversations. 
And, you know, being in a room with a thousand of your closest friends listening to some random guy speak at you for an hour or however long the talk is, isn't really a good way of having a conversation. No. And generally the best things you have is in the hallway track, right? Um, I agree. At these places. Yeah. Yeah, so, if you're able to make that engagement and happen to bump into people that way. And I, and there's yeah. all these other devices now we're creating, like the birds of a feather and, and the open space scenario. We're just trying to create opportunities that are, or I've seen the other one I just saw at Interop, the unconference, where the, a group of people, a common topic, and, and everybody speaks. Each guy takes a turn kind of thing. Exactly. And that's so much better, right? Because unfortunately, I think we as an industry have kind of, you know, looked at conferences as being training events, right, or a substitute for sending some guy to a five-day class um, with the idea that, oh, there's just more options, and then the guy can go off and, and pick and choose among the things that he thinks is best. But um, but I, th- that's just too bad, right, because that kind of drives you to these kind of mega-scale conferences that you have in which the conversations largely kind of get lost. Yeah. Yeah, and the big, big conference is really about it's a larger buffet, and yeah. you can go sample more things. Yep. rather than actually dig in deeper into the conversation. I think we're still trying to shake off the academic element of a conference, the whole submit a paper, that kind of mentality versus but the But I find that things like tech ed really aren't like that, really, right? You know, it's it's kind of largely... Well, now that I get to see a tech ed from the inside of the company as opposed to from the outside of the company, you know, it's a lot of folks just trying to say, well, this is our product, this is our technology, and we want to go off and go, go up in front of our, our customers and, and tell them about it. And I don't know if that's, again, right, it, it doesn't kind of drive back to the, well, what's really important for folks, right? So you see a lot of kind of jockeying for position in the company, right, to try and get your talks in because, well, you know, your product has this many customers, and therefore I need X number of slots, right, inside of tech ed in order to talk about it. Um, so a lot of the times, particularly conferences like TechEd, right, the agenda is driven by Microsoft as opposed to being driven by the attendees. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I especially TechEd. And I've, I've talked yeah. to the organizer of TechEd before, and, and their sort of mantra is this is, our, uh, this is Microsoft's opportunity to touch their customers directly. I just wonder if it's enough of a two-way street. that The customers want to touch you back. Yeah, and I understand that, you know, perhaps, like not, it's not, it, a conference shouldn't be all things to all people. Right, so for the typical attendee that does go to a tech ed, maybe a tech ed is perfectly fine, right? But for another group of attendees who want to have more of a conversation style thing, right? Perhaps a different format is better, or perhaps you can cater to both sets by having, you know, for example, you know, some kind of open spaces type event at tech ed. Yeah, you, I'm um, glad well. you mentioned that open spaces thing. It really started for me with the Cabana idea. That yeah, happened. a tech ed. Yeah, a tech ed. Yep. And then yep. all these, you know, Mix had the the sort of the open space. Area. I can't remember what they mm-hmm. called it. What did they call it, Mix? Sandbox. It was the, in the sandbox, right? But yeah, I, I it was forgot something like that. But I mean, the whole called, idea yeah. of just having beanbag chairs and, you know, a place where people can just meet and talk and sit down and hang out. There's yep. two th- experiences I remember from situations like that. One is Scott Hanselman running up to you with a laptop and yeah. saying, Check this out. Yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't matter yeah. what it is, it's cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Yep. But the other yeah. one, just like that, was Scott Guthrie plunking himself down yeah. in a big empty room with his laptop, and you know people would literally just throw a subject at him, and he'd show some code and talk for a while, and then we'd go to the next one and the next one. It was still very much the Scott Guthrie show, but it went whatever uh-huh. direction the attendees wanted it to go. Yep. Hmm. Except that doesn't scale to like a TechEd-sized room, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. No, it, it worked for 40 or 50. Right. You know, and that's why I was a big fan of, you know, the Alt.net thing, right? Because I've been to a bunch of these kind of open space type things before. I helped to organize one of the first ones in Toronto, one of the first bar camps. And, uh, you know, that was a, that was an awesome event in Toronto because that was where I really met most of the folks that work in the startup community um, in Toronto. It was through that event. So how is that going, Alt.net? Alt.net? Um, so I'm not like a member of the movement per se, right? Um, I'm <laughs> not a card I'm more no. of... I'm more more one of the guys that whose technology that the guys that are in charge of the movement are really into. Right. Um, so, so I can understand, you know, why they like the the set of tools and the philosophies and the practices that they endorse. And you know, I'm all for that stuff. It's just that, you know, in my day job, I just don't have enough time to really kind of lend um, much support, really, unfortunately, right, to 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 the the overall movement itself. Yeah. Um, but that said, right, like I really love a lot of the ideas that these guys are, are talking about, and 
And, and part of what I'm trying to do with, with Iron Ruby is to try and figure out how we can help um, that community, right, at least, you know, insofar as Ruby is concerned, right, to, to try and have, add that to the toolbox of folks that, that are interested in the alt.net movement itself. Oh, cool. You know, when we last time we talked to you, which was only about a year ago, I know I wanted to talk to you mostly about Ruby, but we ended up largely in a conversation about the DLR. Sure. And I still don't feel like we've really seen the DLR surface per se. Where is it at? So the DLR ships as part of both Iron Python and Iron Ruby today. So we just shipped a beta of um, of Iron Python just uh, a couple of days ago. Um, and uh, and we continue to ship the DLR in every single source release um, that we have um, of Iron Ruby as well. And so essentially what's happening right now with DLR is that the languages themselves, so the languages that we produce, which is Python and Ruby, are driving a lot of the design changes inside of the DLR itself. Right. Um, Ruby arguably doing more of it because the DLR initially started off as, as being the Python language runtime. And uh, now has morphed into a, you know much more of a general purpose um, dynamic language runtime, and so that's been all goodness as far as all of this stuff is concerned. So the DLR itself, um, you know, today is is targeted to ship in sort of like a, an official Microsoft sanctioned product um, as part of the next release of Visual Studio. Um, the DLR will ship as well when um, Iron Python goes 2.0 and when Iron Ruby goes 1.0. So in all of those cases, the DLR will continue to ship as part of these products, but in terms of being a platform piece that gets distributed on one of our big ship train vehicle things, um, you know, the next train that's scheduled to go out on is is the next release of Visual Studio. And um, we, we sort of talked about it a little in a cursory way before, where it was, you know, sort of in the idea stage. How exactly does it fit? Because, you know, that was sort of the, the way that, uh, you know, the, the gotchas that I was thinking about was how it's going to fit into the environment. Is it is it a seamless fit? I mean, do things did you, did things have to be changed in the core languages to be able to um, support it? So, trying to rephrase your question a little bit, yeah. what I think you're saying is, if as a VB or a C sharp guy, if I want to talk to some DLR language library thing, mm. what would need to change? Right. Is that the question? Yeah. Sure. So we've already announced, um, so Charlie Calvert um, published a blog, geez, at least a couple of months ago, I think now, where he was asking for some feedback around a forthcoming dynamic keyword um, that would show up in the next version of C-sharp and C-sharp 4. And this was explicitly to support the dynamic invocation scenario from C-sharp, right? So if I wanted to go, you know, obj.foo, where foo was a method on some object called obj, right, we can declare that object as being a dynamic object, and let the DLR do all the, the, the code gen to do the dynamic dispatch um, to the foo method on obj. So, so yes, this does require changes to the languages, both VB as well as C-sharp, in order to make the experience of speaking to a library that's implemented in a dynamic language, you know, a seamless and transparent thing. You can do it today with the DLR, but you're going to have to use our hosting APIs in order to do that. So it's almost kind of like, you know, using a reflection-like API to invoke stuff on the other side. So you can do that. It's just that it's not as, you know, clean as it could be, right, if we, you know, embedded it into the syntax of the languages. And do you see some point where the DLR is going to come out on its own that we could start having other dynamic languages? Well, sure. You can you can build on top of DLR today um, as it stands right now. We are trying to stabilize um, the API surface for the DLR um, by the end of this year, or yeah, probably I, I would say close to the end of this year. Um, and at that point in time, because um, essentially what happens right now is Ruby, Python, and DLR all live inside the same um, source tree um, as far as our team is concerned. So what happens is if a DLR dev goes in and changes something in DLR that breaks one of the languages, Ruby or Python, it's their job to fix it. Now, when we get to... So imagine that you're some external guy, right? You're not sitting inside our tree, so that if a DLR guy breaks something, right, they wind up breaking you, and it's now your job to fix it. That makes sense. And so that winds up being somewhat more challenging, right, for folks on the outside, right, which is why it's it's nicer because we're integrated because this allows us to move a lot faster. Um, but mm. once the, the DLR Surface API stabilizes, then what happens is folks on the outside can continue to build on top of us, 
you know, safe in the knowledge that um, at that point in time, the, the API service is going to be frozen. Now, right. Ruby and Python are currently the only dynamic languages that use the DLR. Is that what I hear you say? We also manage JavaScript as well, or manage JavaScript. JavaScript, right. Um, that's, yeah. So yeah, I remember we, we talked about that. Now, is, yeah. is there ever going to be a dynamic C-sharp and a dynamic VB? Is that something um, that you want? Is that something that so, we want? So we're adding features to statically type C-sharp and statically type VB um, to allow you to do dynamic things. But whether or not the core languages themselves are going to become dynamic in the sense of what a Python or, or a Ruby just a is separate, be, maybe a fork, you know, maybe another version. So we've we've had these kinds of conversations. So at the MVP summit, we've asked we asked some folks, you know, would you be interested in a scripting language, a C sharp script, let's say, mm-hmm. right? You know, and what's interesting is, yeah, a lot of people, say, yeah, sure, right, but just as many people would be interested in Python as a scripting language or Ruby as a scripting right. language. If you're going to learn something so, new, why not just learn something new? Exactly. So it's it's unclear, and, and certainly we don't have any plans right now of making a C sharp script or you know anything like that. Well, and okay. his question is, how many dynamic languages do we need? Right. You know, so... I don't know. The trend seems to be more languages is a good thing these days, Richard. I mean, you could ask the same question about languages in general. How many do we need? But it's, there's no end to them. Yeah, there's no end. And, and the, the reality is, if you ask yourself as a programmer, is the language that I'm using mostly today the last language that I will ever need to learn in my career? Yeah, I can't imagine that ever being true. But I'm yeah. I'm also a guy who's gone through a bunch of languages. Uh huh. And um, so I think that you know, insofar as dynamic or static or any of these other things, right? I think that you know you really should be using the best tool for the job, regardless of what language religion you you tend to prefer. So realizing that yeah, static languages do have their strengths, and realizing that dynamically typed languages do have their strengths as well. You know, we'll just you know you know. Um, make you a better programmer over, you know, your career um, to be able to exploit the strengths of each language and to avoid the weaknesses of those languages. And I think that, you know, if you do the right thing and you write the right parts of your program in a statically typed language and the right parts of your program in a dynamically typed language, then you're going to get some benefits that folks that don't have that skill set aren't going to be able to be able to, to accomplish. Mm. Do you see experienced developers ultimately... Uh, having a repertoire of languages for a given application that some stuff's got a, is best written in a dynamic environment and some stuff in a statically typed environment and heaven forbid some stuff written in a functional style. Sure, you know if you look at what um, so there's been this meme of the polyglot programmer going around for a while. I'm un, I'm uncertain about who was the first guy to come up with the term, but Neil Ford is one of the guys that I know was right there near the beginning. And so there's this idea. Um, floating around that, you know, if you are a programmer, even today or in the future, um, your programming stack is going to consist of a number of different technologies. You're going to have some layer of your application written in a statically typed language, some layer of your application written in a dynamically typed language, and some layer of your application written in a domain-specific language. Um, and generally, the DSL pieces will most likely be built on top of the dynamic layer as opposed to the static layer, although not necessarily, right, but chances are. Um, that's where it's going to show up. And, again, it just kind of all boils down to using the right tool for the job, right? So if you were an Iron Ruby programmer today, for example, um, and you're calling into the base class library, well, you're calling from a dynamic language into a bunch of libraries written in a statically typed language. Right. Um, and you can also use Iron Ruby to implement a DSL for some set of things that you might be interested in, right? So that creates a layer on top of it as well, right? So that's how you can kind of span all of these different layers. And, and so sort of to and, your point here, we're already doing this. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that, you know, it's not that crazy of a stretch, right, to, you know, to, to see this being a fairly common programming model in the future. You know, some of the low-hanging fruit that I've always thought um, Iron Ruby could be used for in a lot of organizations is to write the set of tests for your statically typed code. Um, so there's been a lot of really nice work that's come out of the Ruby community around behavior-driven development. The RSpec project came out of Ruby. And being able to write these very human-readable specifications for the behavior of your .NET program or your libraries in your program, you know, is just a very nice thing. And being able to do that from Iron Ruby with seamless interop 
into the .NET world is a very nice scenario for folks. It's interesting that I would write my tests in one language for another language. Mm-hmm. Because what you really want to do is you want to specify what the behavior of your system is. And yeah. in specifying that behavior, sometimes syntax really gets in the way of that. Right? So you really want your tests to be able to read cleanly right, from left to right. Most of your unit tests that are written today right, are written in a very Yoda-esque style of thing where you can assert equals you know, something, comma, some other thing. Right? Um, instead of saying this thing should equals this value. Right, which right. is a very nice, clean, left-to-right style of thing. Um, so there's been a lot of work already done in the Ruby community around these ideas, and to be able to simply take an existing library like the RSpec library in Ruby and use it to drive um, your tests against a set of C-sharp um, libraries is, is goodness. A test-specific language. Hmm. Yep. I love it. Hmm. You know, it's a and Ruby very cool is, idea. Is as a language is very good at doing these kinds of things, right? Building these domain-specific languages, um, and largely it's due to the fact that Ruby has a very flexible syntax, so you can make things in Ruby appear to be keywords, right, or language constructs when they really aren't. They're just really method calls at the end of the day. Um, virtually everything in Ruby is a method call, and so given that, um, there's a lot of magic that you can do inside of Ruby to make things very, very readable. Um, some of the other examples I like to bring up are things like, um, like Ant. So if you look at what happened with Ant in the, the, you know, good or bad old days, depending on how you want to look at it, you know, legend has it that James Duncan Davidson wrote Ant on a plane ride over the Pacific. And he wanted to build a build system, right, um, um, for Apache Tomcat, I believe, at the time. And so the build system was just essentially, like a lot of build systems at the beginning is, you know, target foo depends on target bar and baz in order to build. And writing that dependency out in XML was a reasonable way of accomplishing this. But, of course, what happens is these kinds of build scripts that start off being these declarative things over time morph into programs, right? A lot of people like to use their build script and do things like, well, I'm going to not only build this thing, but I'm going to deploy it to my environment. And sometimes when you try to deploy to your environment, for some random reason something fails, so you might want to retry something. And when you get into those kinds of retry things, all of a sudden you now have to deal with exceptions or you might have to have flow control and logic or maybe a loop or something else inside of your um, your build script. And if that build script was written in XML as it was in Ant, right now you're writing programs in XML, which is just a horrible way horrible of doing idea. it. <laughs> Don't even it, say that, man. It just got out of control, really. I mean, it, so- yeah. it sounds like it came from very reasonable uh, starting point and just sort of ran yeah. away. Absolutely. And, Builds are more you know, complicated is, than you think. Yep. And, you know, it started there, you know, like a lot of things, right? But at some point in time, the assumptions that you used to build the thing no longer are true. And now all of a sudden you're optimizing for the wrong thing, right? So clearly James was optimizing for, gee, it's just faster to do things in XML, right? I don't have to write a parser. Um, but in hindsight, right, it would have been much better to do things like what the Ruby community has done with Rake, which is the Ruby make system, right, or, or Ake. Um, and what Rake does is it's a DSL for describing builds. So I can say, you know, this task Bob, right arrow, you know, and an array of foo, bar, and baz, right? So Bob depends on foo, bar, and baz. And with that right arrow thing, it looks just like, you know, Bob depends on foo, bar, and baz. And it's a very nice and clean way of describing these kinds of things. But the nice thing is, when that domain-specific language isn't enough, right, to describe the thing that you want, well, all of a sudden I need to do a loop. Well, guess what? The domain-specific language is written in Ruby. It's embedded inside of Ruby. So you're, you have all of Ruby's general-purpose looping facilities available to you. Or if you need to deal with exceptions, well, Ruby has exceptions as well, so you can deal with that as well. So the nice thing is you always stay in Ruby, right, for doing things. Unlike what we have today, right? So regardless of whether or not you're using NANT or whether or not you're using MS Build, at some point in time, you might have had to write a custom task to do something, right? And when you write that custom task, now all of a sudden you're using C Sharp or VD or something else, right, to build that thing, right? Or Java, right, if you're, if you're an ant. So now you have this context switch into another language in order to do thing, the thing that you want on top of having to now create a build script for your thing, right, that you just built because that's in this other language. Um, unlike, again, in, in something like Rake, where you just stay in Ruby the entire time. Hey, this is Carl. I just need to take a minute 
to tell you about the latest offerings from our friends at Telerik. As you probably know, they've recently released their huge pack of web controls built on top of ASP.NET AJAX that'll help you build impossibly fast and interactive applications in no time. But you've just got to check out their Windows Form stuff. It looks just like WPF. How about a carousel component in Windows Forms? How about a super powerful grid view control and 32 other desktop components with dazzling WPF-like features? In reporting, Telerik has this new design surface that simulates graph paper. And it's got so many advanced page layout capabilities, it looks more like graphic design software. So visit www.telerik.com and download a free trial. And make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I remember when the big feature of XML was that it was human-readable. <laughs> yeah. Sure. For some subspecies of human. Yeah, I just don't know if I've met that guy. <laughs> yeah, well, right. you know, it can be. It can be simple, and that's like most things, right? <laughs> Except that stuff tends to get more complicated, and off it goes. And so here's this, I mean, the thing about domain-specific languages is it's just so much more readable in the context of what you care about. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, I know I'm not a domain-specific programmer yet, but I'm beginning to believe. Yeah. It's about, well, it's, it's not about writing code, it's about reading code. Exactly. It's always right. been about reading code. I mean, the most popular languages have been the most readable languages, I think. I mean, when we didn't have readable languages, what could we do? But, you know, certainly Visual Basic was very popular because it could be readable. And uh, JavaScript is very readable. Mm -hmm. you know, C Sharp is very readable. C++, not so readable. <laughs> well, yeah, like it depends on how far away from the beaten path of what you know already is. Yeah. So it's really no surprised that the most popular, you know, programming languages today all kind of descended from Algol at some point, right? Because they, they share a very Algol-style syntax, right? You've got kind of these block-like constructs, right? You define a, a function or a method body a certain way. So regardless of what keywords you might use to do this kind of stuff, right, it all looks kind of familiar to you, right? But now switch into a non-Algol language like, say, Smalltalk, for example, right? The syntax there just looks so foreign and bizarre to you that your brain just spends a lot more time parsing things, right? You can get past that, but for a lot of people, right, that that initial kind of resistance, that initial, oh, look at this code, and I have no idea what this thing does, that shock factor generally keeps an awful lot of people away from it. So languages like Haskell have this, you know, suffer the same fate um, to a large extent. But it wasn't the funny thing, of course, is that Algol's strength was that it was very it had sort of a mathematical bent to it. That it was very declarative, you know, y equals zero, that kind of thing. Although mm -hmm. it did do the goofy construct x equals x plus one. Yeah. Sure. Which to a mathematician, they go, no, it doesn't. <laughs> That's right. Yep. That is incorrect. That's not yep. right at all. But yep. small talk approaches from a totally, it wasn't math based. It came at it from a different angle. Yeah. But unfortunately, the syntax was what kept a lot of people away from it, you know, and you know, so you look at things like JavaScript or all of the languages that try to, you know, follow a popular style of syntax like C, right, which is what all those things derive from. Mm. Um, you know, that, that just made it easier for folks to write Hello World and get started, right? So that any kind of friction that kind of keeps you from even looking at the language is generally bad, which is why it's really no surprise today that most of the popular languages today have some kind of C-style syntax around them, with Visual Basic being the notable exception there. Yeah. Well, I don't think VB's any specialer than any other flavor of exactly. basic, but those are all algol origined. That that yep. sort of mathematical speak of a loop and a and an and an addition and so forth. Uh-huh. Yep. But I really thought the small talk stuff was one of the many languages that we're trying to manifest as object oriented languages, that we were going to stop trying to adapt C to be object-oriented and make a pure object-oriented language. Sure. And, you know, Smalltalk had a lot of really good ideas, right, you know, inside of it. Um, and some arguably not so good ideas, but they were still interesting nonetheless, right? Like the image-based model was a very interesting model inside of Smalltalk. And so this idea is, I, I call it the VMware of programming, right, because essentially your program and the IDE is always running at all times, right? So that makes it easy for you to tool that system in the sense that because your program and the IDE are running at the same time, 
you know, it's relatively straightforward for you to walk up to some object and say, hey, what type are you, interactively inside of the IDE. Um, and that's also why, you know, for the longest time, right, small talk IDEs were the most powerful IDEs around. Um, because of all of the, 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 the things like, you know, the test-driven development ideas, right, that, that Smalltalk ID has pioneered, um, as well as all the refactoring tools that, again, the Smalltalk ID has pioneered. It's amazing how much stuff came out of that, because the early day Smalltalk is like the first time I ever heard just-in-time compilation, too. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of real core concepts that we take for granted today came from that those that thinking. This is like early 80s, late 70s kind of technology. So yeah, most of our modern VM technologies owe its their origins again back to Smalltalk um, as well, you know, for similar reasons. And what's also interesting is how, you know, because Smalltalk was a dynamically typed language, you know, the folks that used it also realized the importance of testing, right? Because some of the things that static types do for you, the type checking that is possible at compile time by your compiler doesn't exist because there really isn't a compile time right inside of Smalltalk. Remember, everything is right. always running at all times. So. So given that model, right, tests wind up being significantly more important in a world like that. John, um, can, can we talk a little bit about Iron Ruby? Um, we've sure. talked about it before uh, on the show, uh-huh. and maybe is there anything new to report, any kind of things that you're working on that would be interesting to our listeners? So Iron Ruby is um, one of our important open source projects here at the company. And, you know, by open source, you know, we are trying to run this project in as true of an open source style development model as possible. Um, so open source is more than just, you know, throwing source code at people, right, or giving them a license which allows them to take the code and do whatever they want with it, you know, which for the longest time we've already been doing with Iron Python, for example. Um, but open source is also a process where you try to involve the community as much as possible in um, the design as well as the development of the product. So by opening up the code in an early time, um, we're inviting folks from the outside, not because of any particular special status, right, you know, the, be the MVPs or, you know, other specially anointed people. But instead, just anyone who cares to invest the time to sit down and look at our code base um, can turn around and contribute ideas. They can contribute patches back to us. And we can really kind of engage in this conversation in building the software. Um, so this is really what Iron Ruby represents is, is one of our, our first efforts in this area um, to try and make it so that we can start building software using this style of model. And Iron Ruby is, is special in some senses because we also accept contributions back from the community as well. So not only you know, do we want to say, hey, here's our ideas, we want to run them by you to see whether or not they're a good idea, but instead, hey, if you want to help us out um, and help us finish building this thing, you know, that help is greatly appreciated as well, right? And we'll take your contributions back and we'll incorporate it into our, our product. I mean, it's amazing to consider that Microsoft would do this because up until now, I've always heard that, yeah, accepting code creates liability and da 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 Like, how did, you, how did you beat down the lawyers for this? So accepting contributions from the outside world does generate liability, just to be clear on this, right? It's, it's the fact that, you know, for better or for worse, right, What's going to happen with Iron Ruby is Iron Ruby will always be a downloadable component of something else, and hopefully a completely transparent downloadable component of that something else. So, for example, you could imagine that you know a future version of Visual Studio, you might want to script um, the IDE using Ruby, right, instead of you know um, VD, which is what you're using today, right, to script the IDE. Now. In, in a scenario like that, what would happen is we wouldn't include Iron Ruby on the Visual Studio DVD, right, that we will ship to customers. But instead, it will be this component that will download from the web. And what Visual Studio will say, well, oh, you want to script this macro in Ruby? Fine, let me go off and download the code for you. Right? So this prevents us from getting into one of these kinds of recall class actions that we are very concerned with as a company, right? That is, you know, because of this, this IP that came from the outside world, right? You know, somebody files a claim against us based on that, 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 that contribution, that all of a sudden we can't ship Visual Studio anymore. That would be a horrible thing and, and something that we won't take the risk on. But sure. because this is a component that comes later, right? It's not a big deal, right? We can simply yank it off our website do the appropriate fixes, right, to get rid of the offending piece of code and stick it back out again. So, you know, that just makes sense, right, in terms of, you know, what Iron Ruby represents. It's not going to ship in the box. It won't ship in Windows. 
Dot, dot, it dot. never will. As long it as these will. rules are going to exist, it, it never is going to. It's always going to be separate downloads. Can right? I ask you a little bit about the language itself? How far, if sure. any, if at all, did you stray from the original Ruby uh, language? Did you have to? So we work um, very closely with the other Ruby implementers. And as of today, there are at least six important projects out there today in the Ruby world. Um, you know, so there are six different implementations of Ruby. There are... There is the one that's shipping today, the 1.8.6 branch, which is what we are targeting compliance against, or really technically the 1.8.star branch, because that last digit gets revved um, from year to year. Um, so, so we're targeting that one to be compliant against. There's the next generation of Ruby, which is Ruby 1.9, which is being produced by largely the same team as 1.8.6 is today. Um, so they're building that, that version of Ruby. There is a version of Ruby that Apple is building called Mac Ruby, um, which will run um, as part of OS X and will be the preferred way for building preferred way. I, I would like to think it's a preferred way, but it will be yet another way of building rich client apps um, for Mac OS in addition to Objective-C, which is currently the way you build those things um, on Mac OS today. Um, there is JRuby um, from Sun, right, which is um, a Ruby that runs on top of the JVM. There's our project in Iron Ruby, and finally, there's another project called Rubinius, which is a very small talk style um, approach of trying to build Ruby in Ruby itself, right? Um, using a small core subset of the language that's implemented in C. Hey, John, I don't know how much you follow Sun's workings, but we uh, were at the uh, Dallas Tech Fest the other day, and a guy from Sun got up and was going on at length about how open they are now. Um, sure. Well, this is this seems to be what Sun is all about, right? Sun has kind of transformed themselves into an open source company that happens to sell hardware. Yeah. And, um, you know, how that's going to bode well for them in, in the future and stuff, I don't know. Right? I wish those guys luck, right? It's, uh, it's a challenging spot. They're a Microsoft Gold partner. Yeah. How funny is that? So Sun, Sun sells all sorts of stuff, right? They'll sell you open source stuff. They'll sell you Microsoft stuff as long as you, you write a check for their hardware, right? Because at the end of the day, they are a hardware company, and that's how they make their money. Hmm. Yeah, in some ways, it sounds like they've gone back to what was actually important to them, which was get the hardware out the door. And, they, and to be honest, they built pretty good hardware. Sure. Yeah, they still build, yeah. build great hardware. It's just that they've got an awful lot of competition in that space. Yeah. Sure. No, I think yeah. the margins are somewhat narrow, though they've they've built some extraordinary machines over the years. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the hardware geek popped out again, just like that. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> so back to the idea that, that there are these six implementations um, out there in the community. Um, what One of the great things that that last project, Rubinius, that I mentioned, has, has done is they have gone off and remember we we spent a little bit of time earlier talking about this um this R spec thing and these executable specs right for defining essentially the unit tests right you know for some library so what the Rubinius team has done is that they've produced a set of specs for verifying the behavior of ruby so in other words they've got specs that cover the entire standard library that ships with ruby for example so that any implementation that wants to be compliant or claim that it's compliant with ruby has to pass the spec suite. And the spec suite is enormous. Right? There are well over, today on the snapshot that I have, there's 26, 2700 specs and in excess of 20,000 asserts, right, inside of, um, this library. And there's more in the, in the, in, in the current revision, which we haven't synced up with, um, yet. But we intend to sometime later on this week. And so the great thing about that is all of the implementers now have this test suite that we can now run against our implementation and see how compliant we are with um, the original. I'm just thinking about, then these are all tests, right? Like you basically yep. run your language implementation against this test suite? Yep, exactly. Man, and, that's got to uh, take a while. Sure. <laughs> the, the tests run reasonably quick, but yeah, it still takes some time. Um, to run the spec suite today... You know, on your laptop takes somewhere in the order of about three to four minutes. It's not an awful long time. Um, we've got a much larger test suite that we use um, internally as well where, you know, so the spec suite is really trying to validate that the libraries are behaving the correct way. Right. Um, but we've also got additional tests to validate that our parser is parsing the source code files the right way and that kind of stuff as well. Um, so to run our full set of test suites across you know, all of the different platforms that we support for DLR 
takes today somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 minutes to run on a farm of 20 machines that we have in our test lot. That's awesome. It's just a, it's a cool thing to think about. This is a very meta conversation about the tools used to test a language. You know, here you are building a language that all of us are going to build applications in, and you also have to build the tools, to, you know, write code to test code that runs code. Yep. And some of our tests are generated by code as well, right? So, so we write code to generate the test that, you know, on and on and on. So. So I'm still trying to get over this whole, you're actually taking contributions for the, from the world for Ruby, uh, for Iron Ruby. Uh, how is that going? What's your community like? So our community is a nascent community and it's starting. Um, largely due to the fact that in order to contribute at this point in time, there's a fairly high barrier to entry right now, right? And you need is, to know you a lot. To, yeah, you have to know, you have to know our code base obviously. And you also have to have some reasonable understanding of what Ruby is as well. Um, we can kind of get away with less of an understanding of Ruby because we've got the test to verify that the contributions are behaving correctly. Um, but, you know, that being said, right, it, it always winds up being a smoother um, contribution. It's easier for me to, con- 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 you know, to commit something to the tree, um, you know, if folks understand exactly what Ruby is doing. So something that I've noticed recently in our contributions is that because you're coding up the libraries in C-sharp and you're not using Ruby to write the libraries, you're using C-sharp right. to write the libraries, um, that people tend to be biased towards the way you would write an API in C-sharp, if this makes sense. So of let me course. give you a concrete example here. So let's say that you had, um, let me think of a, a, a decent method. So most APIs in the libraries in Ruby today will accept some type of something as a parameter. And let's say that type is an object, right? And almost all things are typed as an object, right? Because everything is an object inside of Ruby. Now, the fact that it says, okay, so let's say that um, an API like dot up to, right? So you can say some number dot up to some other number, for example. Now, I can pass in a number as that parameter. I can pass in a uh, something that is of a fixed num type, for example, right, which is an, a regular integer. So I can say three dot up to five, and what that does is it runs a loop from three to five. Right? Okay. Um, now that parameter could be a fixed num, but it could also be some object that implements um, another API called toInt, which will allow it to behave as if it were an integer. So what happens is in this case, there is this concept called duct typing right, inside of Ruby. And with duck typing, what that means is it's classic. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it probably is a duck. If an object implements the protocol, the conversion protocol, then we can use it as if it were an integer, in other words, right? So if I can call toInt on you, right, so I'll ask you the question, do you respond to this thing? And you say, yeah, and then I call it, then I can treat you as if you were just a number. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. So what you would have is you'd have an overload, right, for the up to method that would be typed as int in our parlance, but you also need another overload that's typed as object, right? And we've got some helper methods in our libraries that, you know, that are in a helper class called protocols. So you can say protocols dot, you know, convert to int or cast to int um, in this case or cast to fix num. And that will do the appropriate conversions, um, you know, under the cover. So you need to provide the overload. So you want to try and write things as strongly typed as possible, right, because that's how you get the best performance out of our system. Right. So in the case that somebody actually passes a fixed num, we can simply call that overload that takes an integer. Uh, right, a so then the integer, majority case runs really quickly, really simply. Yep, and we don't have to do conversions. We don't have to box things and all that kind of stuff, right? But in other cases, well, maybe you need to do this stuff, right, and that's fine, but you need to provide, when you're building the library, you need to provide us with an implementation that does both. And it, there's not an option to barf an error and say, I don't know what this is? Yep. You have to find a way to deal with it. Exactly, yeah. So so generally, right, this is why, why I mean that, you know, being a good C-sharp dev is, is great and awesome, right? But also you have to understand that, you know, this, well, I know that this thing should take a number, right? Because 3.up to X, what does that mean, right? Well, as it turns out, you can do similar kinds of things in there. Um, but, you know... But you have to be prepared for that other possibility as well. So that's the, the kind of nice thing about um, having a knowledge of Ruby as well as having a knowledge of C-sharp. 
So, so that's why there's a reasonably high bar- barrier to entry because you have to understand a bunch of these things. And we're doing a better job now um, recently of trying to educate our community around these things. So one of the things that, you know, and you know, I take full responsibility for this stuff earlier, right, was, you know, we got kind of, you know, raked over the coals a little bit about um, two or three weeks ago. So this is fairly recent about us not being as open as we could have been, right? So in the sense that we've got a very small team here at Microsoft, right? So right now the Iron Ruby team is in so far as people that contribute code to the tree is myself and Tomash, right? So there's basically me being maybe a half-time dev and Tomash being a full-time dev on this project, you know, being all the guys that write all, you know, 95-plus percent of the code that goes into the product. Wow. And uh, so given that, it's just a lot easier for us to communicate face-to-face, right? So we haven't been running the open source project in as in as open a fashion because, to be honest, it's a little bit less convenient for us to do so, right? So well, rather than you guys are email, probably next door to each other. Exactly, right? So I just walk down the hall to Tomasha's office, and we have a conversation, and we finish doing the thing what we're doing, we go back and we continue working. So instead, what we've tried to do now is do much more of our conversations in the open. So some of the things that we have, for example, as part of our team is a policy that all check-ins must be code-reviewed by somebody else. And so that code review, so generally what you do when you're, you're ready to make a check-in is, so you finish working on your feature, you make sure it passes your tests and those things. You write up a code review mail that kind of explains a summary of what you've done um, and going into detail where necessary, and you throw that out to a code reviewer mailing list. And one of the other guys that's qualified right, to be a code reviewer for the code that you're writing um, will turn around and do one of two things. If it's a relatively short review, they will, um, or very small review, they'll read it and they'll respond to email. And generally it's, looks fine to me, right, uh, right is, yep. is, is what, what gets written in there. Or some, well, did you think about this? Did you think about that? So those are generally the outcomes that, that come out of the, the code review mail. And then at that point in time, you can check stuff in. So we, we weren't putting the code review mails out onto the external mailing list for a number of reasons. Um, but just last week, we turned on that process where, we're now sending all our code review mails out to the external mailing list so folks, if they care to in the outside world, can also comment on the code. But more importantly, they can learn what's going on, right? So the code review mail contains a lot of the quote-unquote documentation right, around what that check-in does and what it's intended to do and, more importantly, why it was done. So getting that information out there is, is really helping us on our transparency angle as well and I think is an important thing that folks need to remember when they're working on open source projects is to try to be as open as possible. And for most open source projects, this is the default or the natural way of working because they are generally distributed. So since people aren't in the same office um, and can't talk to each other easily, right, they generally communicate by some other means. And that some other means can be tracked and archived and searched and all that other good stuff as well. And it must be very tough to, to take a project starting from scratch and put that kind of, and with a small group of people, and put that kind of discipline around it so early on to yep. be able to grow that group out. It often seems to me like uh, open source projects start as a single guy with a bunch of stuff, then throws it up there because he's got nobody else around him, and it yep. grows much more indigenously. This is somehow different. Hmm. And, and partly also the key thing is, is that you need to survive that initial thing, right? So that is the initial I'm throwing a bunch of source code up in some repository to having a vibrant project, you know, X number of months or years down the road is largely due to whether or not you can successfully attract contributors in the early stages of the project. Exactly. And uh, so this is what we're trying to do now, and we've had some excellent contributions from members of the community. Um, you know, my favorite example now is Peter Bacon Darwin um, has written most of our numerical support for Ruby today. Right, virtually all of it is, is, you know, his contribution. He's been doing some excellent stuff as well recently and getting our sockets implementation and some of our regular expression work done as well. So, um so it's really great to have strong community, you know, contributors from outside of the community working on a project as well as, you know, obviously the folks that we pay to show up every day here as well. Um, the good news actually on you know, sort of like a side note is our team is rapidly growing now, right? So if you think you're a, a, a good C-sharp developer or .NET developer, right, or you're a strong developer in general, right, we generally don't particularly care how much you know, or what specific things that you know, right? We care much more whether or not you're a smart guy that can learn things quickly. Um, you know, we have a number of openings on our team right now, you know, to, to expand our work, our team's scope in terms of the, the things that we can do. But it doesn't this take a certain amount? Well, and you didn't say Ruby at all there. And if you're working on Ruby, I, I would think it'd be useful to have some background in Ruby. 
It does, but the perfect example I'll give is Tomas, right, who is our compiler dev. He's an awesome dev. Didn't know a line of Ruby when he started. Nice. Right, and I would argue that today he probably knows more about Ruby than almost anybody on the planet. Because he had to learn it, and he learned it from the Absolutely. mindset of somebody writing a language. And I guess that's another angle on this is they there is a kind of thinking for folks that write languages. Yep, and more so than I think that most folks realize is that there is an awful lot of corner case analysis that has to go in, right? Like, generally, it's fairly straightforward to get a feature working in some kind of core 80%, 90% scenario, but it's thinking about how that feature interacts with all the other kind of crazy, wacky features that, that languages like Ruby have. It's that set of interaction that creates this crazy combinatorial explosion of the possible number of paths through the code that you now need to think about ahead of time. And that's really what makes it challenging. What's that term? Cyclometric complexity. Yes. Cyclometric complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the more features a language has, and you know, the uh, the much the the more complexity you have, and it grows at an almost a uh, logarithmic scale. It's the number of uh, possible paths that code can take. Yeah, yeah. And the combination of features is the scary part, right? So, how does this feature interact with this other feature? And if you don't think about those things. When you are building the language, generally what happens is you're going to bake some bad assumption into your code. And if that assumption is really, really bad, you might be forced to rewrite. Right. And, you know, that's happened in at least one of the implementations out there where they have one, they have a bad assumption. They, they knew about it. They didn't get clarity until fairly late into it. And that forced a rewrite of some core parts of their, um, their implementation. Just a tremendous amount of work to fix that. You know, so that's why it's really important, right? So a lot of this, you know, why are, you know, some devs better, you know, X number of times, where X is some number that you can argue about, um, better than the average dev, right? It's it's largely due to that kind of foresight and thinking, well, I wonder what happens in this case, right? And thinking about that early enough in the process um, so that you can avoid that expensive rewrite down the road. Yeah, these can't be easy developers to find. What an interesting set of skills. Yeah. You know, and Tomash is, you know, like like he he was um, involved in the he was one of the two devs that built Fallinger, which is PHP for .NET. So he had experience building a compiler from scratch, you know, for a dynamic language on top of .NET before he joined the company. So, you know, so that that's awesome, right? That that kind of experience and, and a lot of the things that we have today, a lot of the things that you know he was thinking about in terms of the interactions of something like eval with all of the language features were largely driven by his experience out of PHP. So that can be, like, what is it? Experience is making every possible mistake or something like that. There's some, you know, pithy quote about that, right? <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah, I'm not that smart. I just screwed up first. <laughs> yeah. I screwed up in all possible ways, right? So so, um, so that's definitely the stuff that he brings to the table, which has been, you know, on our project, invaluable. You keep mentioning, Thomas, what's his last name? Tomas Matushik, M-A-T-O-U-S-E-K. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I remember us talking to another uh, uh, Tomas uh, Petrikic uh, uh, that worked on Fallinger. It was involved with Fallinger as well. Yeah, yeah. Both those guys went to the same school, and uh, in, in in the Czech Republic. Yeah, the Czech. So, that's right. In Prague. That's right. We talked to yep. him. Yeah. So yeah, and I just, you suddenly school. brought it back to me when you said, mentioned Fallinger. That PHP implementation was just fascinating. Uh huh. Building yep. languages. There's a business. I mean, very, you know, somebody should get into that. <laughs> Wait a second. I mean, that's really what Microsoft's been founded on, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? You know, a lot of it is, you know, the way we justify our existence, right, you know, to the rest of the company ultimately, right, is, is the fact that we deliver value to the underlying platform. You know, so having Ruby run on top of, you know, .NET and on top of Windows, right, and on top of Silverlight, is just goodness for the platform that's underneath us, right, because we're giving folks out there more choices, um, upon which they can go off and build their applications. Well, that was always that's always been the strength of the Windows platform was every language, and and really the CLR was every language one runtime. Right. So it's a common platform that can run in a bunch of different places. Hate to be the party pooper here, but we're just about out of time. John, you have any uh, shout outs you want to make before we take off? I just really want to say thanks to our community, you know, for, for, you know, helping us, you know, get as far as we are today, right, in, in our implementation. We've got, you know, one, one more near-term step that we have right now, which is at RailsConf, which is coming up at the end of the month. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're trying to make sure that we can, 
um, get to a point where we can run at least Hello World and Rails, right, by the time we show up there. Uh. So that's been a that's a big testament to the language because Rails uses an awful lot of features of Ruby. And, uh, you know, so if we can go off and show that, that we can actually run Rails at the time, you know, the, the Rails conf does come around, right? We've got four weeks left right now. Um, that would be awesome. Right? Because that really shows at the end of the day our, what our commitment is to making sure that the language, that we're true to the language and we are, you know, building a compatible implementation of, of Ruby. Excellent. Well, and, and Rails is, to me, what really made Ruby suddenly so successful, the language had been around for a while. Oh, didn't Rails just forever. break yeah. everything out? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right? There's, you know, the vast majority of Ruby programmers today are Rails programmers. You know, and, uh, and Rails really um, kind of appeals to a very pragmatic set of folks out there, folks who just want to get things done. Like I've been saying that, you know, Rails is the visual fox pro of the 21st century, right? Because it really is this pragmatic bunch of folks that build applications that talk to databases that display data to the users, right? That's kind I wonder of if what... you could say the same thing about ASP.NET helping uh, really, really taking, making .NET take off. It was the pragmatic part of this bigger concept that people grabbed onto and built apps quickly with. Hmm. Yep, exactly. All right, John, where are we going to see you next? Where are you speaking? So the next place I'm going to be at is going to be RailsConf at the end of the month, and then right after that is TechEd. So I'm going to be at TechEd. Rails what? What is that you said? RailsConf. RailsConf. Where is yep. that? That's going to be in Portland. Okay. And, uh, of course, TechEd is in Orlando just right. a week right after that. So, so I'll be down there. Unfortunately, they, they stuck me in the last time slot uh-huh. of the conference. So it's going to be me and the janitors there. And <laughs> somebody well, else, maybe, the two-week right? thing, I think they, you know, I keep hearing the story that all the best speakers are speaking towards the end of Dev Week because of the two-week bridge. Oh, really? Because I know yeah, I'm it. on Thursday and Friday as well. But I'm on the last time slot on Friday. Okay, yeah, you got screwed. 5.45, right, I think. (laughs) Buy a case of (laughs) Haagen-Dazs. Yeah, worked (laughs) for me. hand it out. Yeah, that's right. Bribe the attendees to show up. So if you guys want to come to my session. Ice cream (laughs) is all powerful, man. (laughs) All right, Tom. Thanks for talking to us. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a